part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Uh, we are one week away from completing James. We've been uh, in the book of James for months. We've taken a little break here and there. But for the most part, we have been pretty consistent. And uh, next week, we'll actually have a, a, a little break from it also as we have a special Thanksgiving service, uh, time at the Lord's Supper next week, and just coming before Him in thankfulness of what He's done in Christ. But this morning, as we look at James chapter 5, I want to start off with uh, really kind of, it could be a deep theological question. If you're a deep thinker, uh, then you might chew on this a little bit. Does God ever get in a hurry? Does God ever hurry? Now, now think through that a little bit. Not just your emotions, your thoughts, or something like that, but, you know, trying to, to come from a biblical perspective, what the Bible reveals about God, what He reveals about Himself through His Word. Does God ever hurry? Well, let's think about it for a second. Why do we hurry? A lot of times we'll hurry because of something that uh, happened in our life that really we did not intend to have. How many of you have ever overslept? And so uh, the moment that you oversleep, that all of a sudden you look at the clock and you've got to be somewhere in 15 minutes. And so you hurry or you at least make that attempt to hurry. And it wasn't so much that you had planned to hurry. It's just all of a sudden circumstances in life brought about a, a certain amount of hurriedness. Or what about the time that you get sidetracked or distracted about something and, and all of a sudden you kind of catch yourself and you come back and, all of a sudden, you know, kind of things have mounted up a little bit. So you hurry because for a while, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, they were just kind of gone. Or other times in our lives we may hurry because something came up that we were not aware of. Traffic jam. We thought we had left plenty of room to get from point A to point B, and all of a sudden there's a wreck. Or they're working on the bridge, you know, at 85, and all of a sudden you find yourself sitting in traffic for 10, 15 minutes that you would not planned on. And so that sense of hurriedness comes about us at that point in time. Not so much that we just were anticipating it, but because of those things that we did not anticipate. Hold on to that thought. Because is there ever a thing that God never anticipates? Is there a thing that God does not know? If a lot of our hurry comes through the things that we did not expect or that we did not anticipate, then all of a sudden we're, we're going to, okay, if, well, at least on that characteristic, God is never in a hurry. Because God knows all things. He knows the past, the present, the future. And so never is God going to kind of oversleep. The Bible makes it very clear that he doesn't sleep or slumber. God doesn't get distracted. It's not like, oh, my goodness, these people in Asia need me today. America, just hold on. And God's not like that. We take a very human form sometimes of God, of this human understanding of God. He's not human. He is spirit. He's God. When we think about hurrying, sometimes it's because we hurry because we think we're going to miss out on something. I, I, I've talked to ladies before. They said, you know, I'm 32. I haven't been married. I really want to be married. And so sometimes there's a temptation. I'm not saying it happens. But I, they think there's a temptation in, in every young man's heart, every young woman's heart. They reach a certain age. Society says, you should have been married by now. And so they start to feel that pressure. And maybe, just maybe, they would go out there and just find a person. He's breathing, he's living, he's got a job. Well, he doesn't have a job, but he's living and breathing. And so you kind of come back and say, okay, two out of three ain't bad. And we find ourselves hurrying in life. 
I've talked to ladies before, sometimes when in family planning. You know, if we're going to have a child, we, we need to go ahead and have a child now. Do you understand that sometimes the circumstances in life, both under our control, some of those things that are out of our control, bring this sense of hurriedness to our lives. And so when a pastor or somebody mentions patience, all of a sudden we, we sit a little bit on the end of our seat because... I don't know that anybody has ever said, you know, I'm just the most patient person I know. If there's one characteristic in life that I really don't need any more of, it's patience. I've never met that person. Because all of us understand that there's a limit to our understanding. There's a limit to our control. And it brings about this stress, this anticipation, sometimes this sweating of the brow that we're going, okay, I've got to hurry and I've got to do this. With that in mind, let's go back to the original question. From a theological, biblical approach, does God ever hurry? I would propose this morning that under those circumstances, no. Because nothing is ever out of God's control. Nothing is ever unexpected by God. He knows all things. And and God never runs behind. Never oversleeps. Never gets distracted. Never gets caught being unaware. But by that standard, I think it would be very easy to answer this question and say God never hurries. I want you to understand that if you can grasp that this isn't just something that we're speaking about God this morning so that we can find out just more about God, because the truth about you really is going to rest in this truth. If you ever hope to be a person that says, okay, I've just learned to become more patient. In the same way the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, I've learned to become more content. And we saw, you know, we talked about contentment last week. And James wasn't saying, okay, just learn to do without. Bread and water is fine. He wasn't saying that. What he said is, where have you placed your heart? Where have you placed your hope? In the same way, when it comes to the anxiety of the things that we can't control, and so we hurry through life, We're hurried to fix this. We're hurried to do whatever. Even with great intentions, it's not about you. And you're never going to find a source of just becoming more patient in and of yourself. It's got to rest on something bigger. Because I don't know the last time you checked, the last time I checked about myself, I'm pretty unpredictable. I can really aspire to great things. I can get really enthused on a Sunday morning sermon. But by Monday morning, I'm going, but here's the reality, God. <laughs> that was really good fairy tale talk yesterday. And somewhere out in, you know, somewhere, that's probably truth. But this is my life, and this is my truth, and this is what happens today. And all of a sudden, those great things of God, that rest and that comfort that he wanted to give us, all of a sudden is eluded because we have these circumstances and these situations in our life that seem to overshadow the very promises of God. This morning, as we open to James chapter 5, we see uh, not once, but twice in the opening verses there, verse 7 and also in verse 8, and coming with this very direct command upon our lives, be patient. Uh, Let me tell you, like a professor, did, did you ever have that professor that said, this will be on the test? I love those professors. <laughs> you know, this will be on the test. You know, I would circle it. I would highlight it. And I would make sure that I studied it. Because they were kind enough to say, this will be on the test. Well, this will be on the test, guys. God is telling us. James is telling us in such a fashion here. He, say, he wants us to know, as a Christian, as followers of Christ, this is going to be on the test. Be patient. 
he tells us for our own uh, ability to be able to kind of get there before our mind and our heart sometimes gets there. The difficulty is that we are a people of hurry. And our culture is a people of hurry. We've added to that. I mean, when did, I mean, even one of my favorite restaurants, Chick-fil-A, say, well, you know, one drive through lane is not enough. I need to have two. And so all of a sudden you see two lanes at McDonald's and different ones like that. One, some fast food was not fast enough. Now, now we're going to make it even faster because we're going to give you two lanes. Or have you ever been, true confession time, have you ever been in a store, you had a product, maybe it's the grocery store, maybe it's something else, you come up with this in hand, you get there, and, and all the lines are full. And you put it on the shelf and you walk out. Has anybody ever done that? It's amazing because you probably needed that. I mean, there's a part of it like, okay, I went in the store to get this. It's not like I just was browsing. I decided maybe to pick this up. I went with the intention of getting it. I looked at the line. I was in such a hurry that I put it back and and ran out. Folks, we're a people of hurry. Hurry's a part of every one of our lives. Add in a kid or two. And somehow hurry is not just and every, you know, every other moment breath, all of a sudden it's, it begins to dictate our life. So we just find that we're always hurrying. We're always kind of going there. And sometimes kids add to that. You know, I'll never forget some of the days that, you know, our girls would come up and say, oh, yeah, by the way, this project, <laughs> what was it, a life-size person of who? Jane Goodall? Okay, yeah, life-size. Life-size representation. It's due tomorrow. <laughs> And all of a sudden you're hurrying, you know, because of circumstances. We find ourselves in the hurry up. We, we think, we, we really want things kind of an instantaneous. Anybody who has wind stream has quietly cursed them under their breath, sometimes outside of their breath, you know, because it just wasn't fast enough. And we wanted that speed. Folks, we are a people of hurry, but I want you to know this morning, our, our solid, the, the foundation of patience is not for us to learn to be less of a people of hurry. It's to have a confidence that God does not hurry. Our confidence is not our ability just to get better. But Paul learns to be content. James exhorts us to do these things. Why? Because he always comes back to who God is. And that gives him a foundation to have these other things in our lives. I promise you that apart from Christ, you can discipline yourself to be a little bit more patient, a little bit more content, a little bit more this, a little bit more that. You can learn some of those things apart from Christ. But truly for a heart and a mind to have this growing in our lives, it really has to be something beyond our own control. And it comes back to that solid fact of God and who He is. And for the Christian this morning, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, and you struggle with this hurriedness and patience and understanding, especially in times of suffering, because that's what James is talking about, He's talking about not just, hey, be more impatient. Stand in that line when you're checking out at the grocery store. No, he's talking about when suffering happens in your life, when things are really kind of turned upside down, how can you really have and exhibit patience when life is really full of suffering? James chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. Before I read that, let me kind of... Put this out there and see if you see this in the scripture. 
instead of God joining us in our hurry, see, when you read this, if you don't see that instead of he said, okay, I'm going to be with you, in the midst, with you in the midst of hurry. Will he be with us? Yes. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's made that promise. But look at this scripture and see if God is saying more, I will join you in your hurry, or if he's saying, join me in my rest. Let's read the scripture. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now look what happens in these verses. Answer that question. Does God say, okay, I promise I'm going to join you, Sherry, in your hurry? Or the illustrations, the point that he's making, okay, look, guys, back off. Join me that there's a plan, that there's a purpose, that there's something going on, maybe even bigger than what you ever imagined. Which of those two do you think James is writing about? I think that as we kind of digest that, we begin to see that God is inviting us to have his attitude of patience. But, but James isn't the only one to speak of this. Throughout the Bible, the overwhelming amount of, of verses that we see when it talks about patience is always saying, hurry up and catch up with the Lord. No, wait upon the Lord. I mean, go home today if you, wanna, if you have a, a Bible that's on you know, the computer where you can just do word searches. Go see how many times the word wait is in the Bible. You will not be happy. Because it's there all the time. And yet waiting is just, we're a people of hurry. I mean, if anything, okay, hurry up and wait. Let's at least kind of hurry in our waiting. And folks, we just do not see that reflected in God's Word. Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen: Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalms 37, 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of that man who gets carried out or who carries out wicked schemes. The context there, he says, look, you, you get really anxious because you see somebody not doing right and they prosper and, and it bothers you. Where's justice? He says, man, wait, wait, bigger picture, bigger picture. Remember what we talked about last week about contentment? That the, the thought of our own culture, the thought of our own humanity is to look at kind of this section, a day, a week, a month, maybe a year. And we would define our level of contentment upon kind of what's happening in that day, week, month, or year. And then the scripture continually is saying, okay, Bobby, don't look just this week, not just this day, not just this month, not just this year. Take an eternal approach. I promise you, the Word of God is always going to take our micro look and make it a macro look. It always is going to stretch us out to eternity. Because from eternity, you kind of get a better perspective of things. You see things as they really are, not just how they feel that they are. And all of a sudden, we have truth instead of just feelings. I mean, that's one of our biggest challenges. It's not to go with feelings for the moment. Because feelings are real. Don't, don't hear me discounting feelings. <laughs> They're real. But feelings don't always bring about God's truth. There's many times I've felt something, 
but it wasn't in line with God's truth. And had I been able to go to God's Word and expand my vision from the moment when that person did something offensive to me and kind of expand it out, all of a sudden I could see from a clear perspective. My wife is always telling me that as far as driving. Uh, Just yesterday, we're going yesterday, this 18-wheeler starts to pull over, almost, I mean, literally ran us off the road. I mean, it was one of those things that had we not braked and stopped and all that, Jeff would be preaching this morning. I mean, it was really one of those things. It wasn't just me, hey, that's my lane. Stay over there, big boy. It wasn't one of those things. It really was one of those moments when he brought, you know, when he came all the way over. And my thought is always at that moment, you've invaded me. You've hurt me. You threatened something that I love. When the eternal perspective would be, I mean, not that God's really that involved in truckers changing lanes and stuff, but to get that eternal perspective, all of a sudden I go, God, God, all this is in your hands. Psalms 33, 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Micah 7, 7. I love this one. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. It's not just a request of God. He's saying, this is what I want. By God's invitation, we are to look and to rest and take courage, folks, not in our situation, but in God. But I'll be the first one to tell you, that's really hard to do. When you suffered loss, it could be a job loss. It could be a loss of a loved one. When you've uh, suffered loss of a marriage, when you suffered loss and hurt and that experience in your life, you know, the feelings are so deep. It really does kind of say, okay, God, I trust you, but I don't see an end of this. I don't see what you could possibly gather out of this hurt of my life that would further and mature me. Well, that's why I want us to go to the Word today, and I want you to see two things that will help us develop patience, not as a characteristic, but as a result of seeing God in the truth of who He is. First, first truth this morning of why God um, wants us to embrace, not just endure, but embrace different seasons of our lives when God has us waiting. First one, because God always has purpose in the process. I truly believe that there's not a process that we go through that God puts us through that God does not have purpose for. does not mean that he's some chess player up in the skies, moving men around, pawn here, rook here. What it means is he's a sovereign God. He is sovereign in every way. He's given us uh, the freedom and the ability to make choices. But nothing, nothing escapes God. And God always has purposes in the process. Look again what he says in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be impatient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. James uses this illustration of farming. He says, okay, you plant, you wait, and you harvest. Now, I I know that's a great oversimplification, and that there's a lot of things that go during that waiting time. I, I realize that. But basically, isn't that kind of the planning process? You plant, you wait, rains come, sun comes, maybe you weed, you do this, you do that. Yes, you're involved in that, but, but there's the planting, the waiting, and, and then the harvest. Some crops take weeks. Some crops take months. Some trees actually take years. 
before the fruit comes. Now the question, who determined the maturity rate of plants? That strawberries take this long, that lemons take this long, that tomatoes take this long, that corn take... Who determined that? You're, yeah, the Creator. In His wisdom, He said, okay, this I, I want to be pretty spontaneous, and you plant, you wait, but you only have to wait six weeks, and you're going to have the, the, the fruit of it. Other things, you plant, you wait... It's going to take six months before you have the fruit of it. God's the one that designed all that. God is the one that's kind of in control of that. And, but God has a purpose to that process. I don't know that it... You know, God just made things. And he said, okay, you determine how long it's going to take. There was a purpose in every one of those processes. And folks, in our lives, there's always a purpose in that process. James mentions the early rain and the late rain. The early rain, um, everybody there would have known that helps to germinate. The seed goes into the soil. The, the early rain starts to germinate that. Maybe you did that in school. Took a paper towel. Remember, you put the lima bean in the paper towel. And you, you just let it sit there. If you just let it sit there, a lima bean in a paper towel, what happens? And nothing. You put water on that paper towel to that lima bean inside there, what happens? Germinates. Come back a couple days later, all of a sudden you look down there, and there's this little green thing growing out of it. Well, that was the early rain. The late rain that he's talking about there would have meant a lot more in that culture because they were a very agrarian and agricultural culture was that last rain that kind of fortified right before harvest. He says there's purpose in everything. And how foolish that farmer would be to have the early rain, have something germinate, but it didn't grow to maturity and go, okay, I want to go harvest my field now. I know I should wait two more months, but let me go ahead and dig this up. No wise farmer ever does that. A wise farmer knows, no, this takes four months. It takes four weeks. It takes whatever period it is, but he knows this has to go into maturity before I harvest the fruit of it. Here's the hard part, guys. Things in our lives, if we're going to have the harvest of patience, the harvest of righteousness, the harvest of Christ-likeness, it's the Creator that knows how long that has to stay. Now, I'm still voting, hey, difficulty be gone tomorrow. I mean, none of us want difficulties. Nobody wants suffering. But it helps a little bit to be patient when you say, okay, God does not waste a moment of my suffering. God is not denying suffering. He's not saying that suffering doesn't exist. He's not saying get over it, grow up. He's saying I'm working a purpose in your life. And yet, we've all been tempted to dig it up and get rid of it. Is it done yet? Is there fruit yet? One of the greatest lies of Satan is that when we're in a season of suffering, to make us believe that that suffering is a season of permanence. That whatever dilemma that you're in at this moment is going to be the dilemma for the rest of your life. Satan is really cunning. He's really good at that. He lies really well. And he can see, he can take something that God maybe has purpose for six weeks, six months, six years, 
and say, man, you're in that season for the rest of your life. He's just a liar. When what God is trying to tell us is, look, there's always a purpose of the season I have you in. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, if you've ever read Chronicles of Narnia, there's this great line in, in that when it says, um, always winter, but never Christmas. What was he trying to say? Okay. It's always winter. Things are dying. Things are falling apart. You're suffering, but there's never the fruit of that. And if you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia and the lion comes, you know, Christ comes, and, and you know, winter is over, and the fruit of that season has produced something great within those people that have followed the lion, in this sense, Christ. The unfortunate thing is that oftentimes we just don't see that until after the fact. And so that's why that lie of Satan is so pervasive and, and, and so powerful in our lives at times because it really does look, man, we're never going to get out of this. I, I talk to a lot of folks when it comes to financial debt. And, and they bring all their stuff and we start going over it. And, and I'll tell you, there's been times I'm going in my mind going, they're never going to get out of this. You know, and I, that's why I have to go back and say, okay, God, you're not that God. You're not that God. But doesn't it feel like that sometimes? I mean, you really cannot fathom. You can't see a path to victory. You can't say, man, I, I owe this, my, my student debt, and I, you know, my old college loan's there, and I've got this, and then when we bought the house, and we've got this, and then when our first child, we had all this sickness with the child, and so it just mounted up and up and up, and here's how much we make, and even if it doubled, we would still be, folks, it's a lie. Is there a sense of reality to it? You better believe it. That's what makes it a believable lie. Because the, there's been many times that the black and white of a page, it did not balance out. I could not say, hey, take this path, young couple, and in four years, you're going to be debt-free. There were some situations you couldn't say that, but I, I knew that there was a way that God would provide with faithfulness that, that if they just kept on and searching Him, trusting Him, that there would be a way. Maybe it wasn't four years. Maybe it was 10 years. Maybe it was 14 years. Maybe something would happen in their life and it was four months. Who knows? But here's the lie of Satan, that the season of your life of suffering is permanent and that there really isn't an answer in this lifetime for it. When Christ is saying, and it may be winter, but Christmas is coming, to put it in C.S. Lewis's words. So God has a purpose in the process. The second truth, and then we'll close this morning. It goes on what we just said. God always has an end in mind. God always has an end in mind. There's times you can't see the end. There's times that you can't even fathom that there is an end. But God always has an end in mind. Look at verse 8. You also, James writes, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why did he just start talking about the coming of the Lord? I thought we were talking about plants. I thought we were talking about suffering. He said, be patient. And then he gives this foundational purpose that kind of grows us toward patientness. And, and, and he says, what is that truth? The Lord's coming. What is the greatest promise that God has ever made to you that is yet unfulfilled? Heaven. 
now. That Jesus is coming back. That through death or, or through the second coming of Christ, that we're going to be with Christ. Well, would you agree that this morning that that's, there's many promises that God has made to us? Some of those unfulfilled. But is that not the greatest promise? That one day we get heaven, but more than heaven, we get him. God always has an end in mind. Whether by death, second coming, every Christian is in a season of waiting, ultimately, for that promise to be fulfilled. Please, please give me. I do not believe that James and God is being tried here. I don't think he's playing with our emotions. He's not taking great suffering and great loss in our life and say, get over it. I think what he's saying is look at the bigger picture. Look at the promises I've made and know that I have an end in mind. To illustrate this, look at what he says in verse 10 and 11. He goes to the prophets. Prophets suffered. They would give this word of God and sometimes they paid with their life. They would suffer for speaking truth. And look what James says in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. In other words, he said, look, they had a really hard job to do. They had to speak in days when it really wasn't sunshine and say, one day the sun is going to shine. But remember what we looked at just a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 29, 11? That verse that we love to quote, that, okay, God's going to give us a hope, a future, a promise, all this. And remember what was really going on in that story? that there were some false prophets that said, hey, this is happening tomorrow. And Jeremiah, the prophet of God, said after 70 years. But God has an end in mind. Isn't it easy to believe false prophets? When you're in captivity, Nebuchadnezzar is, is your leader, or you're under them, you don't like Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going, man, I, I like this guy's answer that we're getting out of here tomorrow rather than this guy's answer that says 70 years. Even if we really believe that maybe this is the guy who's telling the truth. Does that make sense? How easy it is to believe. I, I mean, we do that as Christians, as brothers and sisters. We try to encourage another. This is going to pass. This is going to pass. Guys, what if we say it's going to pass this week and it doesn't pass this week? What if in God's plan and his process for this season, that it really is longer and bigger, and it's not that it's going to be over in a week. How foolish for me as a pastor to come and say, you know, by next week we'll be really, really fine. You won't hurt anymore. Lost all credibility. Is there a part of that that they want to hear? Yes. Because when you're in the depth of misery and suffering and hurt, all you want is a breath of fresh air. All you want is a little bit of light in that darkness. I get it. But how foolish for us to promise that when we have no control. So what do we do? We have to come back to something rock solid. God, you never waste a season. There's not a season in this process that you're not doing something. And God, you have an end in mind. And James ends with this. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purposes of, of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now get this. Here, what is he saying? He's talking to people in the New Testament 
about a guy that was in the Old Testament. And because where is James pastoring? Where is his church? Jerusalem. So most of his audience, while they're Christians, they have a Jewish background. Do you think they're familiar with the story of Job? Yeah. They grew up with it. And so what James said, he said, look, you've heard of Job? And when we kind of applaud Job, hey, you need to have the patience of Job. He's kind of the, you know, the guy that we kind of set up there on a human level. So, okay, if you want to have patience, be like Job. Here's the reality of Job, though, guys. Job 1.21. Job, in, in one day, loses seven children, his animals, his wealth, his health, friends. His life totally falls apart in a matter of one day in the days that, that uh, went afterwards. And yet, early in that loss, here, here's what Job says. And he's the man. I mean, I could never say this. But, but here, here's that, that, that kind of high point that Job goes to, aspires to. He said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I shall, shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How many of you, that's where your spiritual maturity is? You think I have some words for Windstream? I've got some words for God right there. I'm not just being honest. I'm just trying to be crude. Forget seven children. I lose a child. I, I lose a this. I lose. And in that broken heart, I want answers. And the book of Job has more questions than any other book of the Bible. More questions. Because there's, this is classic suffering. So God tells us, uh, it's not so much, okay, don't you ask questions. Job is questioning throughout the whole book. But look what he does. So, uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can go to Job 42. But if not, just look on the screen. The very last chapter of Job, the very last chapter of Job, here's what he says. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. You understand what Job's saying there, guys? Can you grasp that? God, I heard about you. I heard about you. I heard about you. And, and I know you to be true. I, I, I worship you. I try to follow you. But between chapter 1, when I lost everything and this suffering began, and chapter 42, when there hasn't been an answer to that suffering quite yet, Here's the difference that you've made in my life. I heard about you, but now I've seen you. I've seen you, God. In the midst of suffering, I've seen you, God. I've seen good, good father, not because I heard somebody else sing that song. I see it because after these 42 chapters of my life, that the suffering hasn't been ended yet, I know that you're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's what God's calling us to, guys. A rest in Him. Not a rest in your circumstances. Not a rest in, you know, a, a lack of, or just the satisfaction in hurting around us. God never calls us just to a satisfaction. What He says, wait upon the Lord. Rest in me. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Anybody know how long? the silence of God was between the two Testaments? 400 years. 400 years, 
that we see the, the closing writings of Malachi, the prophets of God, before we see those opening verses of, of Matthew. And that's how it's laid out in our Bible. Actually, you know, it wasn't always written exactly in the time frame of that. 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the nation of Israel, God's people, God's chosen people that he loves, that he's made promises to, that he's made a covenant with, are, are in times of suffering. That's a long season, 400 years. Let me ask you this, because maybe you know kind of the answer. God may have been silent during those 400 years. Was God doing something? Was God active? Did God fall asleep? Did God become uncaring? Did God lose any you know, ability of him being God? Did anything change whatsoever from that silence to the point that he brings Christ into this world. And he gives us an answer, that ultimate answer for our sins. He was ever working, ever working, ever working. Not belittling your hurt, your pain, the pain of my life. But there will be times of silence. Please don't fall for the lie that somehow things have gotten beyond God's control, that you need to get in this hurry, anticipating kind of thing just take rest that God is under control and he has purpose for that season and that there is an end. That end, I'll be 100% honest with you, may be heaven, guys. You may, the second coming of Christ may come or your death may come before you see an end of some earthly suffering. I wish I could say something differently, but the good news is I can say, okay, but he does have an end in mind. And it's not for you to die in your suffering. It's for you to live forevermore in the glory of Christ. We're going to end with the song, uh, Oh, the Blood. And as you, as you just think about what God was doing in that 400 years of silence, maybe this morning you just say, God, I feel like I'm in that silence. But I pray that this song encourages you because it points back that during this time, God is fulfilling his plan that he's going to send a Savior that Savior, the epitome of suffering. Nobody has ever suffered like Christ suffered. And yet that suffering was not without purpose. It was not you know, without a season. It was, there was an end in mind. And here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. The end in mind was you and me. The suffering of the cross, one end in mind. So I can see my granddaddy one day so I can see my grandmother one day, so that I can rejoice that even though present suffering may not stop, there is an end, there is a hope, all because of the hope of Christ and his blood. Let's just worship and rejoice this morning in this beautiful song. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.